Section 25 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 10, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary the Second, Chapter 4, Part 1. Our narrative now leads us back for a few weeks to witness the proceedings of the elder daughter of James II at her court of The Hague, which was in an equal ferment of agitated expectations with that of England. Here the princess was occupied in listening, with apparent simplicity, to the polemic and political explanations of Burnett in Holland, who had undertaken, by special commission, to render her subservient to the principles of the coming revolution. Those who have seen the correspondence of the daughters of James II may deem that the doctor might have spared any superfluous circumlocution in the case, but on comparison of his words in those letters, it will be found that it pleased the Princess of Orange to assume an appearance of great ignorance regarding the proceedings in England. She knew but little of our affairs, says Burnett, till I was admitted to wait upon her, and I began to lay before her the state of our court and the intrigues in it ever since the restoration, which she received with great satisfaction and true judgment and good sense in all the reflections she made. Another subject of discussion with the Princess of Orange and Burnett was the reported imposition regarding the birth of her unhappy brother and unconscious rival. This slander each assumed as a truth, but the princess, stifling the memory of her sister's disgusting letters and her own remarkable replies, appeared to hear it with astonishment for the first time. In the course of these singular conversations, Burnett observes, The princess asked me, what had sharpened the king, her father, so much against Mr. Jurieu? The real reason has been detailed in the previous chapter. It was for writing a violent attack on her father, accusing him of having cut the throat of the Earl of Essex in the tower. Mary knew this well, for it had been the cause of indignant discussion, and the recall of Cudley, the British envoy, who would not endure to witness the presentation of such a libel by Jurieu to the Prince of Orange in full levy. Burnett was not aware that the princess meant to discuss Jurieu's foul attack on her father. Perhaps the fact was only recorded in the ambassador's reports, but Burnett replied, wide of the mark, that Jurieu had written with great indecency of Mary Queen of Scots, which cast reflections on them that were descended from her, and was not very decent in one employed by the prince and herself. To this the princess answered by giving her own especial recipe for historical biography as follows. That Jurieu was to support the cause he defended and to expose those that persecuted it in the best way he could. And if what he said of Mary Queen of Scots was true, he was not to be blamed. And she added that if princesses will do ill things, they must expect that the world will take that revenge on their memories that it cannot on their persons. A more rational method of judging than that induced by the furious and one-sided advocacy this princess approved, and which she was pleased to see stain the memory of her hapless ancestress, on whose person party vengeance had been wreaked to the uttermost, is by the test of facts illustrated by autograph letters. By the spirit of a genuine correspondence, may the characteristics of historical personages best be illustrated, and the truth, whether ill things are done, 
best ascertain. The united aid of facts and letters will throw light on the deeply veiled character of Mary II of England. About the time this conversation took place between this highly praised princess and her panegyrist, Burnett, she received the following letter from her stepmother, a princess who has had her full share of this world's revilings. Queen Mary Beatrice to Mary Princess of Orange, September 28, 1688. I am much troubled what to say at a time when nothing is talked of but the Prince of Orange coming over with an army. This has been said for a long time and believed by a great many, but I do protest to you that I never did believe till now, very lately, that I have no possibility left of doubting it. The second part of the news I never will believe, which is, that you are to come over with him, for I know you to be too good. I do not believe you could have such a thought against the worst of fathers, much less to perform it against the best, who has always been so kind to you, and I do believe, has loved you better than any of his children. Mary had actually written to her father, only a few days before the receipt of the above letter, that the journey her husband had taken to Midden, whence he returned September 20th, 1688, was for the sole purpose of getting the German princes in Congress there to march against France, he being still the Generalissimo of the War of Spain and the Emperor against France. James II showed his daughter's letter to Barillon, the French ambassador, then at his court, as an answer to his warnings regarding the Dutch armament. Meantime, Bevel Skelton, the cavalier ambassador lately at The Hague, perseveringly warned his royal master of the real machinations of Mary and her spouse. Louis XIV offered to intercept the fleet, preparing for the invasion of England, but nothing could induce the father to believe these warnings, in preference to the letters of his child, who, moreover, complained most piteously of the ill-conduct of Bevel Skelton, as a person wholly in the interest of France against her and her husband. James II actually inflicted on his faithful servant the punishment of incarceration in the tower, because he reiterated his cautions after recall. James was vexed with the peace of Europe being broken, more concerned with his endeavors to prevent France and Spain from going to war, than apprehensive of invasion from his son of Orange, in profound peace, and firmly believing Mary's solemn affirmations that her husband was only preparing to repel the hourly expected attack of France, he actually offered William, as late as October 3rd, new style, forces for his aid, both by sea and land. James was sure that the outcries of Bevel Skelton, by way of warning, were the mere effects of French diplomacy to force him to war against his son-in-law. The political instructions of Burnett to the princess nevertheless proceeded, uninterrupted by any filial misgivings, the foregoing letter was calculated to raise in her bosom. While every indication promised full success to the revolution preparing for Great Britain, the peculiar notions of the Prince of Orange, relative to Queen Regnant's, threatened some disagreement between the two principal persons concerned in the undertaking. In this dilemma, Dr. Burnett kindly tendered his diplomatic aid and proceeded to probe the opinions of the princess regarding the manner in which she meant to conduct herself towards a regal yoke fellow. The princess, says the instructing divine, 
was so new to all matters of this kind that she did not at first seem to understand my meaning but fancied that whatever accrued to her would go to the prince of orange in right of marriage i told her it was not so and explained henry the seventh's title to her and what had passed when queen mary married philip of spain i told her that a titular kingship was no acceptable thing for a man especially if it was to depend on another's life the princess asked burnett to propose a remedy i told her the remedy he resumes if she could bring her mind to it it was to be content to be his wife and engage herself to him to give him the real authority as soon as it came into her hands the princess bade me bring the prince to her and i should hear what she had to say upon it the prince of orange was that day hunting on the morrow i acquainted him with all that passed and carried him to her where she in a very frank manner told him that she did not know that the laws of england were so contrary to the laws of god as i had informed her she added that she did not think the husband ever was to be obedient to the wife and she promised him that he should always bear the rule but such was the disposition of the prince of orange that he said not one word in approbation of her conduct he told burnett if that could be deemed commendation that he had been nine years married to the princess and never had the confidence to press this matter which had been brought about so soon readers familiar with the etiquette of courts will naturally feel surprised that the princess of orange should have been reduced to the necessity of requesting the assistance of dr burnett to obtain for her an interview with her august consort to afford her an opportunity of speaking her mind to him on this delicate point on what terms of conjugal companionship could their royal highnesses have been at this momentous period may reasonably be inquired if indeed we may rely on the statement of the reverend historian in curious illustration of these alleged passages touching the conjugal confidences of the orange pair are the facts that at the very time and for the former two years a correspondence was carried on between the princess of orange and her sister anne on the subject of the bitter insults and mortifications the princess of orange received daily from her maid elizabeth villiers the preference given by the prince of orange to his wife's attendant would have been borne in the uncomplaining spirit with which mary endured all the grievances of her lot but she could not abide that the shameless woman should boast of that preference and make it public matter for the world to jeer at or perhaps worse to pity mary relieved her overburdened heart by relating details of these mortifications to her sister the letters have not yet come to light perhaps they have been destroyed but they are often mentioned in the dispatches of ambassadors the wrongs described therein raised the indignation of the princess anne to a height which led her to the imprudent act of raiding bentick when in england as an envoy for the ill conduct of his sister-in-law very probably she approved as little of the conduct of his wife and told him sharply to check the insolence of elizabeth villiers to the princess of orange the remonstrance of the princess anne was duly reported to her brother-in-law of orange and the remembrance laid up for a future day the effects of which anne felt after william was on the british throne holland was then full of british exiles ready to join the invading expedition of the prince of orange some had fled from the bitter persecution which the ministers of charles the second had established in scotland 
some from the bursting of the various plots which had formed a chain of agitation in england since the wedlock of william and mary the queen her stepmother continued to mention at times the reports of invasion evidently without believing that the actual fact could take place from such near relatives in profound peace the last letter that james the second wrote to the prince of orange is friendly and is directed as usual for my son the prince of orange the public reception of family letters at length became a matter of either pain or confusion to the mind of the princess of orange the last letters written to her by her father she would not receive personally as usual from the hands of his envoy albeville but sent for them privately they were probably destroyed unread the french ambassador de Val wrote to his court that the princess of orange was seen every day even on the very day of the embarkation in public with a gay laughing countenance this is not in unison with the statements of two other eyewitnesses burnett and albeville nor indeed with probability which is better deserving credit than the evidence of either for in case of failure the risk was tremendous i waited on the princess of orange says burnett a few days before we left the hague she seemed to have a great load on her spirits but to have no scruple as to the lawfulness of the design i said to her that if we got safe to england i made no doubt of our success in other things only i begged her pardon to tell her that if at any time any misunderstanding was to happen between the prince and her it would ruin all the princess answered i need fear no such thing for if any person should attempt that she would treat them so as to discourage them from venturing it again she was very solemn and serious and prayed very earnestly to god to bless and direct us dr burnett was accompanying the prince as spiritual director of the expedition which accounts for his emphatic plural us in his narrative at last he resumes the prince of orange went on board and we all sailed on the night of the nineteenth of october sixteen eighty eight when directly a great storm arose and many ships were at the first alarm believed to be lost the princess of orange behaved herself suitably to what was expected of her she offered prayers four times a day and assisted at them with great devotion incredible as it may seem prayers were likewise put up in the popish chapels at the hague belonging to the spanish and imperial ambassadors for the success of the prince of orange it was noticed that at prayers in the chamber of the princess of orange all mention of the prince of wales was omitted likewise she forbade the collects for her father yet his name was retained in the litany perhaps accidentally as the collects are for grace and that god might dispose and govern the heart of her father the omission is scarcely consistent with the piety for which mary is celebrated albeville affirms that the princess of orange wept bitterly when she parted from her husband that she shut herself up after she heard he had sailed with a favorable wind from the dutch coast and refused to dine as usual in public at the hague from the tower of the hague palace mary could behold the naval armament mustering day by day in the brill for the invasion of her sire the silence of documentary history as to the scene of the actual parting between william and mary at the hour of his embarkation for england is partly supplied by one of the contemporary dutch paintings commemorative of that event lately purchased for her majesty's collection at hampton court 
by the commissioners of the woods and forests. In the first of these highly curious tableaux, we behold an animated scene of the preparations for the departure of the prince, described with all the graphic matter of fact circumstances peculiar to the Dutch school of art, even to the courting and handling of the liberator's trunks and portmanteaus close to his feet, while he stands surrounded by the wives of the burgomasters of the Brill and Helvoet sloughs, who are affectionately presenting him with parting benedictions in the shape of parting cups. One fair lady has actually laid her hand on his highness's arm, while with the other side she offers him a flowing goblet of skydom or some other equally tempting beverage. Another low German charmer holds up a deep cup of Rhenish nectar. Others tender schnapps in more moderately sized glasses. One of the sympathetic ladies, perhaps of the princess's suite, is weeping ostentatiously with a handkerchief large enough for a banner. William, meantime, apparently insensible of these characteristic marks of attention from his loyal countrywomen, bends an expressive glance of tender interest upon his royal consort, English Mary, who has just turned about to enter her state carriage, which is in waiting for her. Her face is, therefore, concealed. The lofty proportions of her stately figure, which have been somewhat exaggerated by the painter, sufficiently distinguish her from the swarm of short, fat Dutch Madonnas, by whom the hero of Nassau is surrounded. She wears a high cornet cap, long, stiff waist, with white satin bodice, scarlet petticoat, orange scarf, and fardingale hoop. Her neck is bare, and decorated with a string of large round pearls. The carriage is a high, narrow chariot, painted of a dark green color, with ornamental statues at each corner. In form and design, it greatly resembles the Lord Mayor's carriage, only much neater and smaller. The window curtains are of a bright rose color. The embarkation of horses and troops is actively proceeding. William's state barge has mounted the royal standard of Great Britain, with the motto, Protect Religion and Liberty and the stately first-rate vessel in which he is to pass the seas lies in the offing similarly decorated. Some of the other vessels have orange flags. The people on the shore are throwing up their hats and drinking success to the expedition. It is, altogether, the representation of a very animating scene, full of quaint costume, and characteristic details of the manners and customs of William and Mary's Dutch lieges. Everyone knows that the Prince of Orange safely arrived in Torbay on the eve of the anniversary of the gunpowder plot, a remarkable and crowning providence. As one of the writers of that age observes, since both of these national festivities can be conveniently celebrated by the same holiday. This day was likewise the anniversary of the marriage of William of Orange with Mary of England. The Prince noted the coincidence with more vivacity than was usual to him. He landed at the village of Boxholm, near Torbay, November 5th, when he perceived that all around was quiet, and no symptoms of opposition to his landing, he said to Dr. Burnett, Ought not I to believe in predestination? It was then three o'clock in a November afternoon, when he mounted his horse and went with Schomburg to reconnoitre, or as Burnett expresses himself, to discover the country right and left. He marched four miles into Devonshire and lodged at the little town of Newton, and it was ten in the evening before the whole force arrived there, and then everyone was wet and weary. 
the next day about noon the greatest landholder in devonshire the chevalier courtney sent his son to his highness to pray him to come and sleep at his seat that night the prince of orange went there and for an impromptu entertainment such as it was it was impossible to be more splendidly regaled the prince favoured the courtney baronet with his company four whole days during which time there was no stir to join him as so many days elapsed before any of the population of the west of england showed symptoms of cooperation with the prince of orange a murmur began to be heard among the dutch forces that they had been betrayed to utter destruction nevertheless most of the leading public characters in england had committed themselves by written invitations to the prince of orange the mine was ready to explode but every one waited for somebody to toss the match when the first revolt of importance was made the race was which should the soonest follow whilst the trusted friends of king james persons on whom he had bestowed many benefits were thus striving who should be the first to betray him a noble contrast was offered by dr ken bishop of bath and wells one of the prelates whom he had incarcerated in the tower for refusal to comply with his dictation in favor of the roman catholics the letter is little known but it journalizes the early progress of william in the west of england and is valuable in regard to the bishop's allusion to himself as chaplain to the princess of orange several persons who had affected to become roman catholics as a base homage to james the second's religious principles had deserted to the prince of orange yet this western bishop stood firm to his loyalty although he was no sycophant of james for unarmed but with his pastoral staff he had boldly faced kirk in his worst moments of drunken rage and despite of his fury comforted and aided the unhappy victims of his diocese of the monmouth rebellion therefore every one expected to see bishop ken following the camp of the orange prince but the courage and humanity of our deeply revered ken in sixteen eighty five was if tested by the laws of consistency the true cause of his loyalty in sixteen eighty eight his letter is addressed to a kindred mind that of sancroft archbishop of canterbury may it please your grace before i could return any answer to the letter with which your grace was pleased to favour me i received intelligence that the dutch were just coming to wells upon which i immediately left the town and in obedience to his majesty's general commands took all my coach horses with me and as many of my saddle horses as i well could and took shelter in a private village in wiltshire intending if his majesty had come into my county to have waited on him and paid him my duty but this morning we are told his majesty has gone back to london so that i only wait till the dutch have passed my diocese and then resolve to return thither again that being my proper station i would not have left the diocese in this juncture but that the dutch had seized horses within ten miles of wells before i went and that your grace knows that i having been a servant to the princess and well acquainted with many of the dutch I could not have stayed without giving some occasion of suspicion, which I thought it most advisable to avoid, resolving by God's grace, to continue in a firm loyalty to the king, whom God direct and preserve in this time of danger. And I beseech your grace to lay my most humble duty at his majesty's feet, and to acquaint him with the cause of my retiring. God of his infinite mercy, deliver us from the calamities which now threaten us, and from the sins which have occasioned them my very good lord your grace's very affectionate servant and bishop 
Thomas, Bath and Wells. November 24th, 1688. The Princess Anne had an interview with her father on the 3rd of November, old style, when he communicated to her the news that the Dutch fleet had been seen off Dover, and he lent her a copy of the Prince of Orange's declaration, which had been disseminated by him along the coast. The king was on friendly terms with his youngest daughter, nor had he then the slightest suspicion that the invasion was instigated by her. The same day I waited on the Princess Anne, says her uncle Clarendon, and she lent me the declaration of the Prince of Orange, telling me that the king had lent it to her, and that she must restore it to him on the morrow. This appears to have been the last intercourse between the Princess Anne and her father. The declaration blazoned abroad, the slander that the Prince of Wales was an infant impostor, intruded on the nation by King James, in order that England might fall under the rule of a prince educated as a Roman Catholic. It may seem unaccountable, wherefore the daughters of James II adopted a falsehood, which aggravated the needful exclusion of their father and his unconscious son into personal injury, but it was the contrivance of their own private ambition to guard against the possibility of the Prince of Wales being taken from his parents and educated by the country according to the doctrines of the Church of England, which would have excluded his sisters effectually from the succession they eagerly coveted. Lord Clarendon made a last attempt to touch the feelings of the Princess Anne for her father, November 9th. I told her, he writes, that endeavors were using for the Lord's temporal and spiritual to join in an address to the king, that now it would be seasonable to say something to her father, whereby he might see her concern for him. The princess replied, that the king did not love that she should meddle with anything, and that the papists would let him do nothing. I told her, that the king was her father, that she knew the duty she owed him, that she knew how very tender and kind he had been to her, and that he never troubled her about religion, as she had several times owned to me. The princess replied, that was true, but she grew exceedingly uneasy at my discourse and said, that she must dress herself, and so I left her. The news arrived in London in a few hours that Lord Cornbury, the eldest son of the Earl of Clarendon, and of course, the first cousin of the princess, had deserted the king's army with three regiments. His father, bowed with grief and shame, omitted his visits to his niece, who demanded, when she saw him, why he had not come to the cockpit lately. Lord Clarendon replied, that he was so much concerned for the villainy his son had committed, that he was ashamed of being seen anywhere. Oh, exclaimed the princess, people are so apprehensive of popery that you will find many more of the army will do the same. Lord Cornbury's defection was perfectly well known to her. He was the first gentleman of her husband's bedchamber, and by no means troubled with the old-fashioned cavalier loyalty of his father. His wife, likewise in the household of the princess, made herself remarkable by dressing herself in orange color, a mode we shall find the princess adopt to celebrate the fall of her father. Thus day by day has the uncle of the princess Anne left memorials of his conversations with her regarding her unfortunate father at this momentous crisis. It was scarcely possible, if justice did not require it, that her near relative, Clarendon, could have represented her in the colors he has done, 
or preferred the interests of the son of his brother-in-law to the daughter of his sister. If Lord Clarendon had had a bias, it would have surely been to represent the conduct of his niece in as favorable a light as possible. It is by no means a pleasant task to follow the windings of a furtive mind to the goal of undeserved success attained by means of that low cunning which in fools supplies and amply to the want of being wise. Yet be it remembered that the worst traits which deform the private character of Anne are those portrayed in her own letters and in the journals of her mother's brother and trusted friends. At that time, the Princess Anne was waiting anxiously news from her husband, who had, in fair-seeming friendship, departed, in company with her father, to join his army near Salisbury, with the apparent purpose of assisting in defending him from his son, the Prince of Orange. The Prince George was to be attended in his flight by Lady Churchill's husband, the ungrateful favorite of the king, and Sir George Hewitt, a gentleman belonging to the household of the princess. There was a dark plot of assassination contrived against James by these two last agents, which seems as well authenticated as any point of history, being confessed by Hewitt on his deathbed amidst agonies of remorse and horror. While the husband of the Princess Anne was watching his most feasible time for absconding, he dined and supped at the table of the king, his father-in-law. Tidings were hourly brought of some important defection or other from among the king's officers, on which Prince George of Denmark usually turned to James II with a grimace and voice of condolence, uttering one set phrase of surprise. "'Es ill possible!' At last, one Saturday night, November 24th, the Prince of Denmark and Sir George Hewitt went off to the hostile camp, after supping with King James, and greatly condemning all deserters. The king, who had been taken alarmingly ill in the course of the last few hours, heard of the desertion of his son-in-law with the explanation, How has S. ill possible gone off too? Yet the example of his departure was one of fearful import to the king. James II had not the slightest idea, but that his heart might repose on the fidelity of his daughter Anne, when it is remembered how unswervingly affectionate and faithful even the infant children of Charles I had proved, not only to their father, but to each other, in similar times of trial and distress, his confidence in his daughter cannot excite surprise. A contemporary has preserved the letter which George of Denmark left for the king on his departure. Prince George of Denmark to James II. My just concern for that religion, in which I have been so happily educated, which my judgment truly convinced me to be the best, and for the support thereof, I am highly interested in my native country, and was not England then become so, by the most endearing tie? The prince has made this note a tissue of blunders, confounding the Church of England with the Lutheran religion, although essentially different. The biographer of Dr. Tollettson claims the composition of this note as one of the good deeds of that prelate. It is certain that Dr. Tollettson was not in the camp of King James, but actively employed in London. The only comment James II made when he read the note of George of Denmark was, I only mind him as connected with my dearest child, otherwise the loss of a stout trooper would have been greater. Instant information was dispatched to the princess at the cockpit, that Prince George, Lord Churchill, and Sir George Hewitt had successfully left the camp of her father. 
Anne soon summoned her coadjutors and prepared for her own flight. She had written the week before to warn the Prince of Orange of her intentions, and had very systematically prepared for her escape, by having had constructed a flight of private stairs, which led from her closet down into St. James's Park. Lady Churchill had, in the afternoon, sought a conference with Compton, Bishop of London, the tutor of the princess. He had withdrawn, but left a letter advertising where he was to be found, in case that the princess wished to leave her father. The bishop and the ex-lord chamberlain, Lord Dorset, sent word that they would wait in St. James's Park with a hackney coach at one o'clock in the morning of November 25th, and that if the princess could steal unobserved out of the cockpit, they would take charge of her. It is stated that Lord Chamberlain Mulgrave had orders to arrest the ladies Churchill and Fitzharding, but that the Princess Anne had entreated the Queen to delay this measure until the King's return, an incident which marks the fact that Anne was on apparently friendly terms with her stepmother. Meantime, a manuscript letter among the family papers of his grace, the Duke of Devonshire, affirms that the King had ordered the Princess herself to be arrested, if this had been true, he could not have been surprised at her flight. The facts, gathered from several contemporary sources, were as follows. The Princess Anne retired to her chamber on Sunday evening at her usual hour. Her lady-in-waiting, Mrs. Danvers, who was not in the plot, went to bed in the antechamber according to custom. Lady Fitzharding, at that time, the principal lady of the bedchamber, to the Princess Anne, being sister to the mistress of the Prince of Orange, was, of course, an active agent in the intrigue. This lady, with Lady Churchill, came up the newly constructed back stairs, unknown to the rest of the household, and there awaited the hour of appointment, Purdue, with Lady Churchill's maid. When one o'clock struck, the princess stole down into the park with these women, and, close to the cockpit, she met her auxiliary, Lord Dorset. The night was dark, it poured with torrents of rain, and St. James's Park was a mass of black November mud. The adventurers had not very far to walk to the hackney coach, but the princess, who had not equipped herself for pedestrian exigencies, soon lost one of her fine, high-heeled shoes inextricably in the mud. She was, however, in the highest spirits, and not disposed to be daunted by trifles. She tried to hop forward with one shoe, but Lord Dorset, fearing that she would take cold, pulled off his embroidered leather glove, which was of the long gauntlet fashion, and begged Her Royal Highness to permit him to draw it on her foot as some defense against the wet. This was done amidst peals of laughter and many jokes from the whole party, and partly hopping and partly carried by Lord Dorset. The princess gained the spot where the bishop waited for them in the hackney coach. The whole party then drove to the Bishop of London's house by St. Paul's, where they were refreshed, and went from thence before daybreak. They sent out to Lord Dorset's seat, Copt Hall, in Waltham Forest. The princess only made a stay there of a few hours, and then, with the bishop, Lord Dorset, and her two ladies, set out for Nottingham, where they were received by the Earl of Northampton, the brother of the Bishop of London. That prelate assumed a military dress and a pair of jackboots, and raising a purple standard in the name of the laws and liberties of England, invited the people to gather round the Protestant heiress to the throne. End of section 25